If you would, open your Bibles to Mark, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. Now, when he arose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. And when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they did not believe her. After that, he appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country. And they went and told it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. Later, he appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table, and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will follow those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents. And they, if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. So then, after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. Amen. Church, I hope that you'll leave your Bibles open with me to the Gospel of Mark. Like uh, has been read, we are in chapter 16 and we're wrapping up the conclusion of the Gospel of Mark. And I just have to tell you, um, preaching is a fearful thing. Uh, there's a presumption, right? Uh, and a right presumption that when someone stands in front of a, a group of people, whether they be a, a half a dozen families 10 years ago at the beginning of this church plant or a room filled with people and guests, that there's something that's said that would be worthwhile to hear. And the problem is, I know me. Um, and even if I have something that I feel like today is worthwhile to hear, I'm not real confident upon further examination that maybe next week I would still think that that was really great to say. Uh, you know how that works. You've shared really good advice. You've offered really helpful counsel. And then a month or two later, you're like, I can't believe I said that. And I'm not sure it's going to work out real well for these people. Uh, it is... Uh, a fearful thing to think that there's something that you have to say, uh, which is why we open up the word, which is why uh, in years ago when I considered whether or not I would be a, a pastor, I thought maybe, but I'll just be one of those shepherd pastors who, who, don't, who don't preach, so I'll be an associate pastor, and I was for, for years, but I don't want to preach because I really don't want to have the pressure and the burden to have something to say, and then I realized something. That if the pastor, if the preacher is up here thinking they have something to say, that's the preacher that you want to have sit down. We don't have anything to say. And, and even if there, I had something that I thought would be particularly helpful, uh, there's no confidence, there's no promise, there's ho- no hope in what I would have to say. But there's something that I do have. And man, does this have something to say. And it's, it's greater than good advice. 
It's better than something that, that you sort of advise a people to consider for a season and maybe try it out and see how it works out in your life. It is good news proclamation that's true. And all of a sudden, all of the fear and anxiety that I would have in a call to ministry and, and in a call to, to preaching in particular disappears. And I can be confident because I just want to say what this has to say. And it's for that reason why, for the last 60 weeks, we have gone on this road with Jesus through the Gospel of Mark. Because man, has the Lord had amazing things to say. And we've listened, and we've watched, and we've, we've paid attention to the words that have been recorded for us, inspired and preserved for us by the Holy Spirit on the road with Jesus in what I would call the slow lane, all right? There's different ways to travel with Jesus through his word. But man, I'm, I'm so thankful that we have a confidence that what we have received together, Lord, please make it so, has been from you according to your word. Heavenly Father, I pray that this would be so. And anything that might have slipped in a side room, a side comment, a bit of advice, a little bit of conventional wisdom that maybe myself or others who have joined in the preaching of the word might have slipped in here that it would get down under your word, under your authority. Lord, because you are true. You are not one to be advised of. Your truth is not something for us to consider. Your gospel is to be proclaimed and received with faith. And so, Lord, we ask that you would speak again, that you would help us to go back and consider the gospel of Mark and that we would receive it as though what you have said in your word is true and ought to affect change in us. And, Lord, this would require, because of the, the fallenness of our way, our practice in life. This would require the invasive work of your spirit by your word in the midst of the congregation. So Lord, would you work faith in us, we pray. Thank you, Jesus, for your kindness to us this morning in speaking. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in your name, in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. The slow lane. Uh, we've gotten what I think is a bit of a different look by going slower than perhaps we've gone before. I know I've never spent uh, over a year in one gospel before as we've gone through. I know I've discovered an appreciation of Jesus that is new to me. Jesus, perfect in righteousness, in our place, even in his baptism. See, I know that Jesus died in our place on the cross and that he's risen in our place so that we might have new life in him. But then I, I read the baptism. I'm like, no, he was baptized for us. Jesus, perfect and righteous in our place in all of his righteousness so that we would be righteous in him. Jesus, the better Adam who defeated temptation. He was tempted for us. Even at the deepest point of human weakness and exhaustion, Jesus was righteous, and he was righteous for us. Jesus completely devoted to the proclamation of the gospel of God. And we see him deeply devoted to this proclamation throughout the whole of our walking slowly with him. And we say, he did that for us, so that we might know God. And Jesus, who has come as a servant of this singular purpose to give his entire life 
to secure a kingdom for those who would follow him in faith. This is the purpose of the gospel of Mark for us, and this is what Jesus has done for us, that we could know him. So here we are at the end of gospel of Mark, beginning at verse 9. I would refer you to the beginning of last week's message. You can listen to that via the podcast. It's up there. But in summary, let me say that it's my understanding, uh, along with a near consensus of biblical scholars and commentators, that we have something truly unique here in the Scriptures, that verses 9 and following uh, are an editor's addition to bring closure to the gospel originally recorded for us in Mark that ends at verse 8. Like I said, I would refer you to last week's message for an unpacking of of the reasoning behind that and why we would understand that that way. That said, verses 9 and following, uh, they don't appear to be original, but they are in significant harmony with the end of the other gospel accounts, which, as I would understand it, probably explains why some early scribe thought it would be valuable and even faithful to be added to the end of Mark so that they would share an ending summary of what would seem like it's kind of missing with how abrupt things end at verse 8. Briefly, if you look at chapter 16, it records the account of women going to the 11 remaining disciples and bringing news of Jesus' resurrection. That's consistent with the biblical record. Uh, We have... Jesus' own appearance to two disciples. This is probably in reference to the encounter on the road to Emmaus that's recorded for us in the Gospel of Luke. And even there, there's a struggle for belief, right? It records the Great Commission. Go into all the world and proclaim the Gospel to the whole of creation. And this is a commission that's given to the disciples and is handed down from one generation to the next to the church to this day. It's our great commission from the Lord as disciples to proclaim the gospel, make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. And finally, it records the ascension and a sort of introduction to the account of the book of Acts in one little phrase. If you look at it with me at the end of chapter 16, they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. I feel like that's pretty much the book of Acts, right? We can be assured that the ministry of Jesus continues. We can be assured that the ministry of Jesus continues even to this very day by his eternal reign in the throne room of heaven, where he is seated and reigns as king of the universe. We know that Jesus' ministry continues to this day by his spirit and by his word, which is why we open in prayer and ask, Lord, work in the midst of your people. Even this morning, continue the ministry of the proclamation of the gospel to our hearts. So now we've gone all the way to the end. I thought this morning we should spend the bulk of our time looking back looking back all the way to the beginning, the beginning of the gospel. Turn with me all the way back, Mark chapter 1, the beginning of the gospel. If you look at Mark chapter 1, verse 1, it says this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark's purpose is a proclamation of good news. The gospel is good news proclamation. 
It's an ancient news. And, and it's announced in the present. The gospel that is the good news recorded for us in Mark is ancient news now being proclaimed in the present in the gospel of Mark. It, it's not a novel religion. It isn't a new invention that Mark is inspired in some way to record for us. The good news of Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the people's longings and the prophetic word for centuries before. Consider the words of the gospel of Mark. It begins right there, at the beginning with previous scripture. Specifically, there are words from two prophets, from Malachi and Isaiah, and they speak about the coming of the Messiah. And while this is the beginning of the gospel, it's a continuing of an ancient story, a story of which Jesus is the center That's so important for us, I think. Let's remember, when we open up the gospel account, the story doesn't begin there. We're stepping into the middle of the action, and we would do well, as we will, beginning next week, to go back and remember where that action began and continued, as next week we begin a series in the minor prophets, looking at what the prophets spoke about the coming of the Lord and as a warning and call to the people to repent. Now, at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, we move quickly to consider John the Baptist. Justin Sarah, when we were preaching through this uh, over a year ago, he said, John the Baptist, he's here and he's gone. That's it right there. A true nobody telling everybody about somebody. Now, that is a good definition of a gospel proclaimer, not someone who gives good advice and had helpful thoughts that everybody thought we should let him talk longer, Right? No, he's a nobody telling everybody about somebody. The gospel is about Jesus Christ. The ministry of John is about Jesus as surely as our lives must also be about Jesus. I love this quote from Nicholas Ludwig, who's actually also known as the Count of Zinzendorf. I hope that clarifies things for you. This is beautiful. This was his goal, and a goal that's been preached up, been picked up by all those who are faithful in gospel proclamation. His goal was to preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. Oh, the, the, the gospel that's preached will remain, because he's everything. It's everything that we would want to have known. And John the Baptist, he preached, he died, and he disappears by and large from the record. Jesus is the beginning of the gospel, and Jesus is the gospel's end. Jesus, this Jesus is God-made flesh. The gospel of Mark, as we walk through, makes clear to us. Mark chapter 1, verse 9, in those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Later, we see that Jesus is tempted in the wilderness. In a parallel count in Mark chapter 4, verse 2, after fasting 40 days, it says, he was hungry. You ever hear those little phrases in the Bible that you think, that wasn't necessary? (laughs) After fasting 40 days, the passage says, he was hungry. Is there a more clear statement of Jesus' humanity, of the reality of God-made flesh, than that he fasted 40 days? 
and was hungry. Throughout the gospel accounts, it's clear that Jesus is fully human. He becomes hungry. He becomes tired. He needs to stop walking and rest. He needs to step away from the people and find respite from the crowds. He needs to go before the Father in prayer to be strengthened. Jesus is truly God in the flesh. Jesus was really human in all of humanity's finite frame. It's one, been one of the greatest advantages to me in walking so carefully and slowly through the Gospel of Mark is to see the Jesus, you know? The, the guy who, who walked, who put one foot in front of the other and thought, do I want to do that again today, you know? Jesus. When we consider Jesus' incarnation in light of the temptation, we see Jesus came to do what Adam and Eve, the first humanity, failed to do. Jesus is fully human, but he's the perfect human. Jesus came because for us to become for us what our first parents failed to become, the God-man, fully obedient to the Father. You and I have a shared ancestry. Adam and Eve, God's first creation, are our first Parents, every single one of us, but for those who are in Christ, we have a new ancestor, a new humanity secured for us by the obedient one. And unlike our first parents, Jesus demonstrates perfect obedience to the Father. God the Son takes on flesh and walks in perfect righteousness. Now think about it for a second. It's actually not surprising to discover that God made flesh in the person of Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, is absolutely devoted to the worship of God. See, God is holy. And when God takes on flesh, he remains holy. And to be holy is to be completely in the whole of what he is, single-mindedly, single-heartedly devoted to his glory. To be devoted to anything else would demonstrate that he's a fool. Because there is only one glory that's worthy. So God takes on flesh and walks as one who is devoted to God. This is Jesus who was tempted in the wilderness and he has become our righteousness, our holiness, establishing a new humanity. We've been transferred not only from the kingdom and the lineage of darkness, but to the kingdom and the lineage of light. So let us move to the most, one of the most consistent themes in the Gospel of Mark, if we're walking through and trying to call these things to mind that we've looked at over the course of many months, we need to consider the kingdom and the word. Put these two things together, the kingdom and the word, at work together. Mark chapter 1, verse 15 says this. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. When it says the time is fulfilled, it means the moment is full up with this. This moment has substance to it. It has meaning and purpose. And this moment, substance, is to reveal the coming of the kingdom of God. 
This is the the moment we've all been waiting for. This is the kingdom moment when Jesus appears. The kingdom is at hand literally because the king is an arm's length away. Those who were there upon the announcement that the kingdom is at hand could reach out and touch him. That's how we know. One commentator writes this, the absolutely theocentric character of the kingdom of God in Jesus' preaching implies that its coming consists entirely in God's own action and is perfectly dependent on his activity. The kingdom of God has God at its center in every single way, okay? The kingdom of God is not a state or condition, not a society created or promoted by men. It's not come through an imminent earthly revolution, nor through moral action. It's not men who prepare the kingdom for God. The kingdom of God is about, by, and to the glory of God. So, as Jesus proclaims the kingdom, what do we do? Like I said, the kingdom of God The announcement of the proclamation that Jesus makes, the gospel of the kingdom of God, is not advice for how to live. It's not good advice about how you ought to do something. The kingdom of God leaves us to ask this question, first of all, in correction to the way that we tend to think about the kingdom of God, we don't usher it in. Think about the way that that so very often we use the the kingdom of God. Oh, we're the church and we're going to usher in the kingdom. We're going to expand the kingdom. But no, we neither create nor promote it. The message of the scriptures is we seek and enter the kingdom. We pray and wait for the kingdom. We repent and we believe the kingdom. Go and look at the verbs that surround the kingdom of God in the gospel of Mark. Look at the activities that Jesus holds out for the people. They're activities of faith-filled dependence. Faithful dependence ought to occupy our imaginations when we consider the kingdom of our Lord. What does it look like to approach the king and his kingdom in a manner that gets down underneath of him? in humility and faith. Now there is a call to repent, the act of turning. But what is being turned from? If we're turning to the kingdom of God, we turn from the kingdoms of this world, don't we? All hope of establishing a variety of kingdoms and ways in this world by which we can save ourselves. So repentance is actually abandoning all other hope. All other means of being saved. That's what it means to repent. It's not to demonstrate ourselves worthy of the kingdom, but to realize that we ourselves are in absolute need of the kingdom. Faith-filled dependence. We don't follow a kingdom value set. We don't follow a kingdom political system. We don't follow a kingdom philosophy or a kingdom social theory. We follow the king. And he brings us into the way of his kingdom. You say, where, where you go is where we need to be because where you are is where it is safe. 
because you will keep us. That's the kingdom's borders. The safety, the peace, the reign, the redemption of the king. James Edwards says, in Jesus of Nazareth, the kingdom of God makes a personal appearance. Not merely a proclamation, but the king is there. And so the announcement of the kingdom of God is actually the announcement of the coming of the king himself to gather his people into his kingdom reign. And that's exactly, if we're paying attention to the words of what happened throughout the Gospel of Mark, that's exactly what he does. He gathers a people to himself. He teaches them the nature of his work for them. And it's shocking to them what he would do for them. And then he does it. And he calls them to believe it again at the end of the gospel. Now, a major theme related to the kingdom itself is the word of the kingdom. If you go to Mark chapter 4, and I encourage you to go ahead and turn there and, and take a peek as we walk through. Hopefully, you'll see things you've written in the margins and underlines you've made during the course of our time. The parables of Mark chapter 4 can be summarized in the Father's own words about the Son in chapter 9. Maybe even write Mark 9, 7 at the top of Mark 4. It says this, this is my beloved son, the father says. This is my beloved son, listen to him. This is the message of Mark chapter four. Attention to and trust in the word of Jesus is the means of entrance into the kingdom. Attention to and trust in the word of Jesus is the means of our entrance. It's how we seek and enter As the first parable of chapter four makes clear, to fail to make use of the light means you will lose all benefit of your access to the light. In other words, it's a call to not only hear the words of Jesus, to possess them, but it's a call to take hold of the words of Jesus by faith, to follow after them. And yet the application point is not as simple as a call to read your Bible more. That's, that's a means by which we can go and hear the words of Jesus. But the application is not simply go and know it more. The people who heard this parable probably had most of the Bible memorized. The message isn't, hey, know it better and better. Now, we got a lot of catching up to do if that's the case, and maybe we ought. But the call is actually to believe your Bible more. To believe the words of Jesus. It's a call to expect that the words which he has given to you are actually sufficient to make sense of the world in which we find ourselves. And I'll tell you, the most complicated world in which I find myself is me. The world of my own heart is the most deceptive, most confusing Place to live. The light is the only thing that makes sense of this world. No searching deep. No paying attention to myself. No no following after my heart's desire. It's going to make sense of me. To hear the word of Jesus. And to believe that he makes sense of this world. That he makes, he brings light to what I cannot see or understand, and I simply trust him. I even say things like, man, I, 
I don't like that, Jesus. That's not how I would do things, but I'm so confused by me. And you're king of the universe, so. Faith-filled dependence upon the words of Jesus. The remaining parables of Mark 4 demonstrate that the mystery of the gospel is that it grows miraculously by the word. And this is huge. It changes the way that we are as a church together, as fellow partners in the gospel, as partners and proclaimers and partakers of the gospel. The mystery of the gospel is that it grows miraculously by his word. It is the word that works. The word is the means of kingdom growth. Will the word of God's promise ever truly flower into a great and glorious kingdom of peace and rest? And the answer is found in the parable of the mustard seed. Absolutely it will. It'll be miraculous in nature from small to large and great effect. Miraculously by his word. The Lord in his incarnation has come into the most humble and unexpected of circumstances. He's come in the most humble and unexpected of ways. But what he has done by his word and the work of his gospel has literally changed the world forever. The parable of the mustard seed has been and is being fulfilled. The word of the Lord works. And it's a miracle. The kingdom of God has come in the person of Jesus Christ and the, the Jesus Christ, the king, has spoken and we enter into his kingdom by faith in his word. What's the call, church? There, there's some times when I think, do, do we need application points? Or is the application point screaming at us? Seek the Lord and his word. Ask him, make sense of my life. Make sense of this world. Make sense of my household. Make sense of our church. Speak. We're listening. This is the beloved son of the father. Listen to him. In the gospel of Mark, Jesus calls a small band of people to himself. These people are his disciples and he says many words to them. And his call, the call of the father, is listen to Jesus. These disciples, we've observed that an apt metaphor to conceive of this small band of disciples is, is Jesus' little church in a boat. This has become one of my favorite metaphors for the church, Jesus' little church in a boat. At the end of Mark chapter four, if you're still there with me, and elsewhere in Mark, we see the disciples in distress on a storm-tossed sea. Every time the disciples get separated from Jesus or take their eyes off of him, they end up in distress. I mean, are you with me? They end up in distress, evidence that the church, in church history, that we have seen ourselves in this way as a storm-tossed people in need of rescue is found in the name of the part of the church building in which the congregation would gather in the cathedrals. And the name of that part of the building where the church, the congregation, would gather is from the Latin word ship. It's the nave, the ship, and all the little church gathers into the little boat. Brothers and sisters, this is us. We are a small band of disciples. No matter where we find ourselves in the world, 
no matter what nation or political circumstance we find ourselves in, no matter the, 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 the friendliness, it would seem, of the culture toward the church, we are always a small band of Jesus' little disciples in his little ark, hidden away with disaster and judgment all around us and often seeping out of our own hearts in the midst of the boat, but the Lord sees us. He is awake, and he rises to rescue us, and he descends from the mountain to be with us, and he reveals himself to us, and he rescues us. How? By his presence with us. It is when the presence of Jesus it becomes known in the midst of the disciples that the, the disciples are both absolutely afraid. <laughs> like, whoa, who is this? And where they find peace. Jesus called the disciples to become distinct from the crowd. And that's one of the most interesting characters in the, the book of Mark. Pay attention to the crowd when you read it back through this character. The crowd plays such a clear role throughout the book. In Mark chapter 3, verse 9, it says this. He told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. They're often pressing down upon him, and ultimately they would cry out, crucify him. But instead of becoming a ministry to the crowd, Jesus invests in 12. Isn't that interesting? Jesus called those whom he desired. Now, before we get to, before we begin to misunderstand what that means, that he calls those whom he desires, he didn't call the desirable. Friends, you and I know that, right? These disciples weren't chosen because they were the cream of the crop. They were chosen Chosen because the Lord willed it, because the Lord desired it. And that's the way that discipleship works. This is one of the ways that, that we go off so badly. I think this is a, almost a way that, that many of us were taught in our youth, that God loves you so much. And, that, and that's true. He, tr- he does. Because he has chosen to love you. Because he's good. And he's gracious. He's merciful, abundant grace and mercy. But I've begun to think that, man, he, he chose me. I better show him that he did a good job. Like, nice pick, Jesus. I'll, I'll prove that, that when you were picking who was going to be on your team, you made a good decision. I spent so much of my life trying to prove to God that he made a good call when he chose me. But he knows exactly what he chose. He chose someone who needed him. You see, disciples weren't chosen because they were desirable. They were chosen because the Lord willed it. Now, one of the things that can happen as we look at Jesus' strategy, because we're supposed to, to go about life and ministry the way Jesus did, right? That we begin to become excited about this perfect ministry strategy. But we're told right up front that with Jesus' perfect ministry, ministry strategy to, to not go after the crowds, but rather to invest in the 12, we're told right up front that one of them will betray him. So much for the strategy, right? It didn't work, per se. Only the cross and resurrection works. Friends, we've seen that over the last few weeks. At the end of the Gospel of Mark, it didn't work, not only for the one who betrayed him, but for the one who denied him and all those who scattered and even who upon news of some miraculous happening, they still didn't believe. 
It's the cross and the resurrection that works, and it's the cross and the resurrection that only that works. There is no right ministry strategy by which we will accomplish something great for Jesus. If your idea of adopting Jesus' strategy, investing in a small few and then expecting exponential growth, if you expect that such a strategy means that things are going to go smoothly, that this is going to build some sort of church plant in three easy steps, you know, you're not paying attention to the gospel. We do God's work God's way. And I think what Jesus does here is wise and good. And God brings about his fruit in his timing and to his glory. In the process, by God's own sovereign grace, he makes us fellow ministers of the gospel. So that by the time we get to chapter six, in chapter six and verse seven and following, we discover three things about gospel ministry in this watching world when he sends out the 12 in chapter six. That we quickly discover that gospel ministry is uncomfortable, not in our strength and together. I hope you see that there's a pattern. One of the reasons why I wanted to walk through and just remember all of these almost scattered things is there is an absolute call for the church to dependence, to faith-filled dependence at all times because gospel ministry is uncomfortable, not in our own strength, and necessarily together. It's not an individualistic call, but a call to a ministry that is together in the church. As we've noted, the gospel is all about Jesus and from beginning to end. And so we can use the phrase Christ-centered ministry interchangeably with gospel-centered ministry. I use the, the phrase Christ-centered ministry intentionally because the center of Jesus' philosophy of ministry, his strategy for mission, is not the crowds or healing or exorcism or even investment in a few. Central to Jesus' vision is to bring the disciples into close relationship with himself. One of the errors that we will often do, I know I've done it, I've thought that I've shared the gospel because I shared my testimony. And I shared the ways that I have experienced change, but I never really actually got around to sharing who Jesus is and what he has done and a call to faith, repentance, belief, transformation, discipleship. Friends, it is about Jesus Everything else that surrounds his ministry must bend the knee, become the servant to the central theme. And the same remains true of genuine Christ-centered gospel ministry today. Jesus is bringing a people into his kingdom through relationship with himself, through faith in his work and his word, that he has taken the place of sinners on the cross, that he's given us life through the resurrection and called us to follow him in faith. This is the gospel proclamation. And those who humble themselves in faith-filled dependence upon that proclamation find forgiveness of sins, life in him, and a king to follow. The heart of the gospel ministry is this singular miracle. And honestly, I think it might be the thing that struck me the most, the most unexpected thing that I found in the Gospel of Mark is this, that Jesus creates and nurtures faith. Now, I would have confessed that, but it was amazing to see Jesus do it throughout the Gospel. So often in the accounts of the miracles Jesus performs in Mark, we see someone come to faith in Jesus. 
But Jesus never leaves them there. Over and over again, we see faith meet grace and be changed. In Mark chapter 5, verses 24 and following, we're told of a woman with a discharge of blood that no physician could heal. She had enough faith to reach out and touch Jesus in the hope that perhaps she would be made well, and she touched him. So it worked, right? She got what she wanted. She had the faith to be healed. She's healed. That's what Jesus is here to do, right? Heal people, right? No. Jesus stops. He finds her. And he calls her daughter. She had faith to be healed. Jesus has grace to save, to reconcile, to bring with the love that the Father has loved us. People like you and I to be children of God. Faith meets grace and gets Jesus. Immature faith meets compassionate grace and becomes discipleship. Thank God. My faith is so small. My faith meets Jesus. I get God. There are other examples. The father goes to Jesus to cleanse his son of an unclean spirit. Jesus speaks with him, leads him to this cry. He asked for healing for his son, and in the end, he cries, I believe. Help my unbelief. The greatest miracle we need is that the Lord would grant us any faith at all. We don't need money or any of the comforts of this world. Mark chapter 10, verse 17, we see that being a rich man is no asset to salvation. Salvation is a miracle of grace alone to forgive sin and grant eternal life. It turns out again, it's all about Jesus from beginning and end. It it doesn't stop being about Jesus. It doesn't stop being the, the work of the Christ. It doesn't transfer to being our faithfulness in discipleship. It's always Jesus who comes to us, meets us, grants us grace, and moves us to maturity. Faith confesses our need for Jesus. Faith confesses that Jesus is able And that Jesus is good and wise, and according to his sovereign will and grace, he will surely rescue those who call out for him. Psalm 118 begins with these words, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Man, will there be a day in eternity when we won't need Jesus to preserve us? Even in the presence of his throne, we need Jesus to keep us and he's good, and he will. By the time we come to the end of Mark 8, the story that Mark tells takes a turn here. I have a line that I've kind of put in my Bible to Mark that there's something drastic that happens at the end of Mark 8. Up to this point, Jesus has been drawing crowds and growing in fame, but from this point on, we'll see Jesus become increasingly focused on teaching the disciples the nature and the purpose of the Christ, okay? And you can see in Mark 8.31, we've talked about it so many times in recent weeks. Honestly, it's one of the reasons why you're, you're looking at your watches and thinking he just got to Mark 8. How long is this gonna go? We're almost done. Because almost everything that happens from this moment on is Jesus reminding and teaching and showing and then doing these words. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, be killed, and after three days rise again. 
And as a result, what we see as Jesus pours into these disciples increasingly, he ends up standing alone. Even next to Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus stands distinct. He's not like those other two. Both Moses and Elijah had great deli- were great deliverers of the people. Moses delivers from foreign oppressors. Elijah delivers from false gods. But Jesus speaks with them of a deliverance of a cross and of resurrection. It tells him. It says that he speaks to them about what they were, were talking about there together. In one of the other gospels, it says that they were talking about his, his upcoming work in Jerusalem. In the remaining chapters of Mark, we see Jesus is the stone that the builders rejected. He's alone in the garden, alone before the kiss of a betrayal, alone as he stands under a mockery of a trial, alone in his beatings and shame, alone before crowds that cry out, crucify him, forsaken by the Father, alone on the cross, abandoned to suffer sin that's been laid upon his shoulders. He did not perform, but he takes for us, and he's alone in the grave. And Jesus alone is the risen Lord and redeemer of all. Friends, Jesus stands alone. There is none like him. There is none who has suffered willingly on our behalf like he has. And there is none who can redeem like he does. Jesus is the one who is righteous Jesus is the one who willingly dies, the one with the power to rise. He's the one who bears witness to the truth. And in bearing witness to the truth, he's bearing witness to himself. The truth of Mark's gospel is simple and profound. Jesus stands alone. All others stand in need. The word tells us Jesus alone is able to save sinners. Jesus alone is able to give his life to cleanse us of our sin. Before Jesus goes to the cross, he gives his disciples one final application, and it's our sending message this morning. Before Jesus, whose word stands alone, stay awake. Mark chapter 13, verse 37 And what I say to you, I say to all. Are we listening? Stay awake. This application, this warning, this call is for us as well. And so I would remind us what this call means for this congregation who spent 60 weeks walking together on the road with Jesus. Jesus calls us to stay awake. Three things that means for us as we go. Prayerful dependence. We have a sort of prayerful dependence that ought to create a regular cry out to the Lord for help. If we are awake, we will see our need. It's the first activity of faith, to see our need. It's one thing to know that you need Jesus, and then another to cry out to him in prayer. To stay awake is to cry out to the Lord in prayer. Second, faith-filled. Listen, faith-filled. Obedience. Obedience secures us nothing. It's not an achievement. Our obedience is not part of a merit religious based system. Obedience is not the root of our faith, but rather, obedience is the fruit of our faith. 
Faith believes that Christ is king and the only way and the, the, the way of his kingdom is actually good. And if we believe that, and we begin to desire that, we will begin to walk in congruency or obedience to that. We'll stay awake to this reality. We'll begin to walk in an obedience that confesses by faith what he has said is true and good. Now it goes against almost every one of my carnal desires. But I trust the king of the universe more than I trust me. And finally, to stay awake is worshipful proclamation. The gospel is news about the person and work of Jesus whom we have come to cherish and honor. We proclaim him because he's worthy, not merely because he gave us a great commission to do so, but because seeing him, we know there are others who need to know. And we proclaim him because we're awake to the reality that Jesus is the only way that any of our neighbors or we might ever be saved. Honestly, so much of our gospel proclamation needs to be this. Our neighbors overhearing us being so loud in our proclamation to ourselves. We need Jesus. We need to stay awake to that. And if we see it, We'll say it. We might even begin to desire it. Lord, may that be what you do in the midst of this congregation by your work and your word. Heavenly Father, faith-filled dependence. Lord, would that produce a people of obedience and proclamation. Lord, I pray that you would save for one who has been here perhaps this whole time I've been holding on to some element of, of their own performance that would merit them anything. Lord, I pray that you would save, that you would cast down the ignorance of, of self-righteousness and bring to this grace-filled, mercy-laden place of dependence. Thank you for your word and your work. Thank you for your cross and your resurrection. And the proclamation of the gospel that through the faithfulness of your servant Mark, and the fruitful, glorious, preserving work and proclaiming work of your spirit has come to our ears so that we too might be saved. Lord, we trust you that you would work in our midst so that we might proclaim your glory and your salvation in song, in worship, and in gospel-centered, Christ-centered ministry in our community. Thank you, Lord. We trust you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen.